0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and uh, welcome back to New Books Network in Medieval History, uh, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm Evans Zarkadas, your host, and today I have the great pleasure of talking with two incredible scholars and the editors of the recent book, The Invention of Byzantium in Early Modern Europe, published in 2021 by Dumperton Oaks Press. Dr. Nathaniel Ashenbranan, is a late medieval and early modern historian who works on the intersection of ideas and power in the Mediterranean world, and is also the lecturer at the University of California, San Diego in the Department of History. And Jake Ransenhoff, um, Hellenism's past and present postdoctoral fellow at Stavros Niarchos Foundation at Simon Fraser University. Hello, Nate and Jake. Um, I was extremely happy to hear that you both are fans of the New Books Network. So I am honored to welcome you to the show.
0: Hi, Evan. Thanks uh, for having us. We're really excited to be
1: here. Yeah, it's terrific to be here, Evan. Thank you.
2: Perfect. And you're calling us all the way. Uh, I'm on the East Coast, and you're uh, one in in, in uh, Nate is in California right now, and um, uh, Jake is calling us from uh, Vancouver, Canada. So. Uh, different time zones, but thank you for being here. Um, I'd like to start our our conversation uh, with both of you telling us a little bit about yourselves first.
1: Sure, Um, I'm happy to go first. So as you mentioned, Evan, I'm a postdoctoral fellow here at the Stavros-Niarchos Foundation Center in uh, Simon Fraser University, Burnaby, in uh, British Columbia. Uh, I defended my PhD at Harvard in uh, June 2022, so just recently. And, uh, you know, I grew up in, I grew up in Florida, actually, so I'm very far away from either Harvard or or here where I am right now in BC. Uh, And, you know, I've always had a deep interest in history. I think it was a way of rebelling against my surroundings. You know, Florida sometimes presents itself as a place without any history. Um, So, you know, in my rebellious phase, the more arcane and obscure the history, the better. Uh, And, you know, it doesn't really get more arcane than Byzantium. So I went into undergraduate work at the University of Chicago, already really interested in Byzantine studies. And I was kind of encouraged and guided on that direction uh, by my undergraduate mentor, the late Walter Kakey. And uh, so I've I've ended up uh, on this path.
0: Yeah, uh, thanks, Evan. Um, So yeah, my path to to Byzantine history is a bit more circuitous than Jake's, uh, I might say. Um, I grew up in Alaska And uh, I I was an undergraduate at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, and I served as an officer in the Navy doing a a bunch of different jobs. Um, And, uh, you know, I got out in in 2009 and I was interested in uh, medieval history. Uh, It's a transition, it's a well-trodden path uh, from, uh, you know, from being a naval officer to a medieval historian. Um, And... uh, you know, I, I studied some classical languages, and uh, I did a, a master's degree at Georgetown and and um, King's College London, and then I uh, I did my PhD at uh, at Harvard, and I finished in 2019, and that's that's where uh, that's where Jake and I uh, first met each other. Interesting.
2: Uh, so you guys both met at Harvard. That's right. Perfect. Yeah, and uh, your positions are, are, are recent, so congratulations on those. I think for for both ends, for what you're doing right right now, I'm sure it's uh, quite exciting.
0: <laughs> yeah, you um, so much.
2: And and it's I, I love hearing how people come to uh, the path of Byzantium. Uh, it's so so di- so many diverse paths that lead people to to Byzantium.
1: Yeah, no one no one gets there by a straight line.
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you um let's dive right in uh i first saw the invention of byzantium in early modern europe being advertised uh by Dumperton oaks when i was working on my uh master's thesis in byzantium and i kind of wish it was published earlier because i saw some of the articles there and i'm like oh i wish i had those in my citation but it published it, it, it was published after that but um either way the Tell me a little bit about what the book is about um, and uh, what did this, where did this idea start from, you know, the invention of Byzantium?
1: Yeah, well, I'll jump in here. You know, the, the book is about how and why scholars in early modern Western Europe, for the purposes of, of this volume, it's defined roughly 1450 to 1850, but you know, it, it's a flexible category uh, as far as the volume is concerned. But how and why scholars uh, studied the texts and the artifacts and the history that we now describe as you know, Byzantine. Uh, and you know, as Nate mentioned, we, were in, we met in graduate school. Uh, we both had the same advisor. Nate was a year ahead of me. Uh, and we discovered you know, during my first year there, at Harvard, uh, that we had this shared interest, Nate and I both had this deep shared interest in, especially in the figure of Charles Ducanche, a French scholar who lived from 1610 to 1688 and is renowned for being you know, a really phenomenally productive scholar uh, in a number of different fields, but including Byzantine studies. You know, He, he published this lexicography of medieval Greek that's still used, works on Constantinople and its monuments. Works on Byzantine genealogy, uh, and you know, so both Nate and I had a real interest in this figure and, and an interest in the history of scholarship, and we were disappointed by the lack of work on this figure of Du And so we thought, well, you know, maybe let's organize a conference about this figure, about Dukanj and his contribution to Byzantine studies. And uh, as we started along that path, and very quickly we discovered that in order to make sense of Dukanj, one really had to reframe some of our basic assumptions about the study of Byzantium as a whole, and its place in early modern intellectual history. So we did end up going through with this conference, but the conference was about sort of the invention of Byzantium in early modern Europe as a category. And that conference was in 2017. We were really pleased with the quality of the papers. We felt like there were important insights, great discussions that were generated. Uh, And so we were really lucky that the project got picked up by Dumbart Noakes and uh, we were able to kind of continue working on a book that was based on the conference and um, it's now come out with DO Press in
0: 2021. Yeah, uh, yeah, I would just, um, I would add to that uh, that you know, one of the things uh, when we were making that transition from sort of thinking about Ducange as a figure and then sort of uh, thinking about his um, his intellectual context. Um, I think that we, together, as we sort of um, read our way through the the relevant uh, literature on uh, the origins of of uh, Byzantine scholarship, the the development of Byzantine studies in early modern Europe, um, we realized there was room for for a different and, and a much bigger project, um, a project that that um, would constitute a, a sort of fundamental historiographical. Um, realignment uh of the field and i think uh that is part of the way sort of we move from uh, you know talking about an individual uh, scholar even one as uh, titanically important as as ducange to to a book that's trying to kind of uh sketch a new uh provisional history of byzantine scholarship
2: right right and and i um correct me if i'm wrong but i think uh, so you mentioned that the the conference took place in 2017 um and from what i was aware uh there was i i i believe this um conversation within the field of uh you know from from scholars like uh, anthony caldellis and such um of you know trying to find the origins of byzantium um do you do you think that because i see your book kind of like the culmination of all of these com- conversations that that happen in let's say the past five maybe more years um where do you see that book in correlation with those um scholarly conversations uh within the field
0: yeah that's a that that's a great question evan um i mean i think the first thing that that Jake and I would say is that we see the book not so much as a a culmination, but rather um, a sort of a, a new beginning. We hope uh, for for a you know a study of the history of Byzantine scholarship in the early modern world. Uh, we've got a lot of great um, we've got a lot of great articles in the book, but we would not uh, you know we wouldn't dare to to claim that we've uh, sort of said the last word on it. Um, if anything, what we're trying to do is kind of set up a framework and, and And set out kind of a a collection of methods that will allow people to make more progress on this. But I do think that you're right that there's, um, you know, a degree to which, you know, we wanted to, uh, to build off a renewed interest in um, historicizing some of the categories that we take for granted in um, in the fields of uh, of Byzantine studies, um, and w- one of the categories that, that I'm sure we're going to talk about a lot today is is you know the the very word and concept of Byzantium, um, but also you know identity. You know how did how did Byzantines think about themselves? How did early modern scholars um, struggle to categorize the uh, you know the the um, the culture and and the products of of the world that we now call Byzantine? So um, so those are I think some of the ways that our we saw our project relating to uh, you know the existing discussions on. The the origins of Byzantium, the origins of Byzantine scholarship.
2: Right,
1: yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, I I was just going to say, I think that's exactly right, Nate. Yeah, that was very well said. Um, And yeah, it is interesting, Evan, now that you bring this up, I'm thinking about the ways that there is something of a you know, as you point out, a a real discussion that's taking place is not just in Byzantine studies, but I think across different fields of medieval studies, where there's an interrogation or a willingness to interrogate some of these older conceptual frameworks in which these studies have been pursued. You know, Anglo-Saxon scholarship right now is in a a major debate over whether or not to retain that term. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a way to see a conversation about both the term Byzantium and the parameters of the study as being part of this much wider movement that's taking place throughout kind of medieval scholarship. And so there's a way that both Nate and I feel that, um, yeah, a deep conviction, a, a commitment to continuing to continuing in this tradition of trying to rethink critically what it means to work on Byzantine material, what it means when we talk about the Byzantines, but also a, a deep-seated conviction that we can't really envision the field or reimagine the the future of the field without really understanding the past and understanding everything that has gone into bringing us where we are right now in terms of the terms that we use to discuss the field and the kind of conceptual furniture that we all carry around in our heads that helps structure uh, our conceptions of what goes in and what goes out of Byzantine studies.
2: Right, yeah and 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 after reading your book, you know, I thought I knew we you know you know Byzantine studies, we all know where where, where that came from. but I, I, after reading your book, I, I should say I was a little speechless on you know how complicated really this uh, uh, this whole subject is.
0: Yeah, yeah thanks that's very gratifying to hear Evan and I think um you know I, I I think that that's one of the uh one of the broad arguments that we wanted to make in this book is that uh you know, previous narratives about, um, the history of Byzantine scholarship in the early modern world, whether those are narratives about sort of enduring Western disdain, or, uh, you know, we, we're constantly sort of, um, flagellating ourselves with these, uh, you know, these incredibly, um, you know, uh, these incredibly, um, eloquent quotes from, uh, Edward Gibbon. Um, the, there are, the history of Byzantine scholarship, I think we're trying to show, is actually much more complex, much richer, uh, much more discordant than uh, than those reductive narratives um, have suggested. And in fact, basically in every age, you've got, uh, you know, you've got cheerleaders, you've got detractors um, and a range of figures in between.
2: Right. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I really, you know, uh, and you do see. You know, that the detraction, as, as you say, and uh, sometimes even today, I, I want to say, I've seen it um, in things that, you know, we, we read and how we engage with the field or, you know, how how the field is placed um, in today's um, scholarly world. Um, but let's uh, move on to um, the words, and you you mentioned that, Nate, the word Byzantium and, and Byzantine. Um, I know even today there is a debate with scholars um, do we keep the word do we not keep the word what does it mean where did it come from um, talk to talk to us a little bit about that.
0: Um, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I think I think that that uh, really goes to kind of the, the the heart of the book. You know, we it, it's our contention, obviously, that uh, that Byzantium as a um, as a cultural category is uh, constructed. It's not natural. Um, it it is uh, made up out of the uh, you know the the scholarly um, and and polemical efforts of uh, people in the early modern world, but it stands on kind of a a foundation of of, um, medieval conceptions about what was going on um, in in the Byzantine Empire. Um, You know, I I think that uh, the important thing to recognize about the, the Middle Ages is that you've got a kind of a tension between uh, the various ways um, people are speaking about themselves and, and categorizing others in the, in the Middle Ages. The Byzantines called themselves Romans, thought of themselves as Romans. Uh, they, they saw their state as a continuation of, of the Roman Empire of antiquity. Um, and in, in the medieval West, it was, uh, it was very different. You know, um, increasingly, uh, after the 9th and 10th century, there was a real competition over uh, the legacy of the ancient Roman Empire. And a number of states in the West uh, were interested in um, appropriating the legitimacy that came with uh, being able to say, um, you know, that, that they were the authentic heirs to the, to the Roman tradition. Um so while in the while in the Middle Ages you have a kind of we're Romans, you no, know, you're Greeks, uh, dynamic going on, um, things get more complicated uh, in you know, beginning in the fifteenth and sixteenth century, as um, scholars in the West are, uh, more inclined to take that, uh, th- those claims to to Roman identity seriously, and then thinking about where that leaves Byzantium compared to these uh, categories that uh, that they're familiar with, whether it's Roman antiquity, Greek antiquity.
1: Yeah, that, that's very well said, Nate. And just to build on that, you know, if, kind of jumping ahead or fast forwarding to the moment that's often seen as the origins of modern Byzantine studies as a field, the 19th century, uh, as Nate brought up very well, um, there is just a constant set of discordant voices in the you know, the long history of Byzantium, both through the Middle Ages and then even into early modernity about, you know, what, the, who or what is a Byzantine, you know, they're both Roman and Greek, they're Western and Eastern, there are all of these different kind of sliding fluid types of categories and uh, once you kind of have the development of the field Byzantine studies, you have these well-defined lines, you up going getting put it to a box and, okay, but Byzantium starts in 330 when Constantine... Uh, you, officially inaugurates the city of Constantinople or it starts in 610 with the rise of Heraclius or it starts with the Islamic conquest. Wherever where, you where want to draw the line, there is this understanding that there are certain very hard boundaries and that there is something called Byzantium and so that, in some ways that almost sets up um, this mirage because if you have people from the 19th century onward looking back to the history of scholarship and trying to articulate a genealogy for their field if you're looking for the types of categories that exist post-19th century this very hard and fast category of Byzantium of course, you don't find anything. Right? Um, it, it's very much a product of this historical moment that we're still living with the legacy of. Um, so, in some ways, and, and this was one of the key insights that this project was founded upon, and that we hope comes across in the book, is that you know, you know these hegemonic narratives of, of absence or disdain that you know, often dominate the, the kind of themes in which the. The history of the field is articulated. Part of this is a product of what scholars have tended to look for in studying the history of Byzantine scholarship rather than what exists there to be found. And when we actually change some of our parameters and think in more flexible ways. We, we find that you know, Byzantine material moves from the margins or moves from this um, neglected kind of afterthought, this tale of Greek or Roman civilization, um, to, to the very center of questions that are, that are really um, vitally important to scholars throughout the middle ages and into early modernity
2: right right and and i do and you and it's also i think worth seeing um and through your book and you know getting into the a little bit of the weeds of, of finding all, all this history of how the field came to be and, and the name and such how closely connected um the field, but also the process of figuring out what Byzantium is uh, or what isn't, how closely connected it is with so many political events throughout Europe. I thought that was super, super interesting.
1: Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It, it was interesting to us too, as we kind of sat down and started to, to think about some of this material and, and engaged in conversations with the, all the contributors to the the volume, um, you know, One of the major takeaways for us is that, you know, Byzantine studies is this unrelentingly political endeavor. And in part, because the category of Byzantine, material objects, texts that we now call Byzantine, are susceptible to all of these different types of interpretations, you know, whether you want to classify them as Greek or Roman, as Western or Eastern, as, you know, medieval or or ancient, um, you know, wherever an individual speaks falls on that spectrum in terms of defining a Byzantine text says a lot about their own um, agendas and preconceptions and what, they're, what they want to, to get across, right? So it, it serves as this really interesting kind of mirror that reflects back on some of the unspoken or spoken assumptions that go into the work of different scholars across time.
2: Right, right. And, and when it comes to the term, you know, Byzantium, um, in, in the beginning, I, I was listening to all of these, uh, um, you know, cer- certain scholars that will make the argument, yeah, we need to abandon the term and, uh, you know, use what they used to do, Eastern Romans or, or Eastern Roman Empire, right? Continue that and change it. And, um, you know, after reading the book and after doing and, and looking how rich it is, I felt that, you know, the term is so heavy right now um that I think if you take it away uh, it, it's just so much lost um so you, so you saw you know using Byzantium because of this history of how the term came to be good or bad um, it, it's a certain history and I think uh, it tells a lot about preconceptions in Europe but also in Greece and throughout the world of uh, the scholarly world of course um, of how um, they were engaged with this particular region.
0: Yeah, thank you. I think I think that's right. It's um, I mean uh, you know I, I, this is a, a trenchant critique in the field right now about uh, whether we should continue to conceptualize um, the the Eastern Roman Empire centered in Constantinople as Byzantine or whether we should abandon that in favor of um, just acknowledging what they called themselves, which was uh, Romans. Um, I think that there's a uh, a lot of analytical value to asking those questions and I think one of the product of that uh you know products of that vein of scholarship has been um you know, a more rigorous interrogation of uh, how Byzantines um, expressed and articulated and conceptualized uh, their identity, uh, but at the same time, I think it's still premature to uh, to to throw over this category as as uh, the category of Byzantine or Byzantium um, as problematic uh, as it may be, as as constructed as it may be. Um, I think that we can acknowledge that uh you know that the byzantium represents a kind of um you know a, a confection of um you know roman uh political traditions uh, greek cultural and and literary traditions and uh distinctive um, Christian identity uh, in a way that's distinctive from, um, from ancient Rome or even uh, uh, late, the late ancient Roman empire. Um, and even more than that, I, I think that, uh, you know, I guess, you know, when you're, when you're a scholar, the answer is always more scholarship. And I, I think that we're just at the beginning of this process of really um, writing a new history of, of the concept and the terminology of Byzantium and Byzantine and, uh, you know, we, we have a lot more work to do. I'll just give you one very brief example. Um, you know, the the word Byzantium, which, of course, gets used in the 16th century, and, you know, scholars in the past, I think, have said, oh, yes, Byzantium is an invention of the 16th century. Well, that's a, a problematic view for a bunch of uh, reasons that are explored in the book. There are several people who talk about kind of that, that myth of creation in the 16th century with scholars like Hieronymus Bolth. Um, but the, but the word byzantium of course has a long and distinguished medieval pedigree uh certainly in latin And it's the, it's a kind of word. Yes, it's an archaism for uh, the city of Constantinople, but it has a kind of long um, medieval, uh, you know, terminological history that we haven't really even begun to sort of explore or, uh, or or unpack. And so, um, you know, there's still so much about this, the the, you know, emerging coherence of, of this term and this word uh, that remains to be studied and, and, and remains to, to really be explored. And so I think, uh, you know, we'd be premature throwing it over uh, when we don't have a, a really rich sense of, of its origin and development yet.
2: And I think that's what makes it exciting, this, this mystery uh, sometimes and, and the gates that it opens when, you, when you, uh, you open the gate and there's even more that open up afterwards. Um, but I think uh, I, I did read on the book that this particular book is the, let's say, like uh, the official first attempt into looking at the, at the Byzantine studies. Uh, did I put that right?
1: Well, you know, I think what we're trying to do with the book, and I would, you know, hesitate to say it's the official first attempt to do anything I, I think it's it's much more much more humble than that um, but we did want this volume to be more than just the proceedings of a conference more than just a collection of sort of vaguely related chapters on a, on a theme we we really wanted to try to bring it together and as far as we were able create a sort of new synthetic vision of byzantine studies if if only you know to have other scholars respond to it and criticize it and um you know, to impel future future work. So, in that sense, um, if we can kind of create a, a an alternative narrative about the development of Byzantine studies that allows others to engage with it in a kind of fruitful way and uh, and build on it, depart from it, but at least you know have some sort of significance for directing the field going forward to think about some of the issues that are core to the volume, then I'll, I'll think we uh, we would be very pleased, and we would have thought that uh, that it's served its purpose.
2: Right, open more conversations and and more uh, opportunities for further research, right? Right, exactly. That's all you can hope. Perfect. Um, If you have anything else to add on that particular component, I think uh, our audience would like to kind of go, not too much into detail, but kind of briefly expand on these four stages that you have... um, structured the book on the history of Byzantine studies from 1450 to the 1900s um, and are cl- clearly introduced in the book um, with the first one, The Humanist Indifference, um, who can give a shot, a quick uh, summary, I guess, of that particular uh, look into the beginnings of, uh, of Byzantine studies.
1: Uh, well, yeah, I'll, I'll say that, you know, the, the four, these sort of four stages, um, this is our attempt to really summarize the the kind of paradigmatic understanding of Byzantine scholarship up to this point. So, you know, there are these um, you know, very famous works in the field, you know, certain articles or different introductions to chapters. George Ostrogorsky or Alexander Basilev had prefaced their different and, and very influential um, histories of Byzantine studies with this sort of survey of, of Byzantine scholarship. And those surveys tend to fall into what we characterize as these sort of four stages approach where every different kind of stage, we have humanism and, and the kind of Baroque era and the enlightenment and the 19th century, all these different stages are characterized by certain kind of hegemonic attitudes towards Byzantium. So this is actually what we're t- really trying to get away from, uh, but this is what we see as being kind of holding the field Right now, or, or still the kind of armature that people carry around with them. Uh, so, so to answer that, you know, question in terms of the humanist indifference, which is often represented as this kind of first stage of Byzantine scholarship, uh, you know, when you look at histories of, of Byzantine studies up to now. They will often represent the engagement of scholars in the 15th century and the early 16th century with Byzantine materials as this kind of indifferent engagement with the material. So, so uh, you know, people, individuals like Poliziano or in Florence or you know, Leonardo Bruni, I mean, there are a number of really famous humanists, even Erasmus. Um, are using Byzantine manuscripts. They're sometimes learning Greek from Byzantine uh, refugees, um, but they're not really interested in Byzantium itself. You know, they they think about these materials, these individuals as being you know. Um, Portals, which they can get back to ancient Greece. So, so they're really interested in, in Plato and in the academy, um, or they're interested in early Christianity, right? And so they're, they're sort of instrumentally using the Byzantines as the yeah, Byzantine material as this way of accessing that earlier history, but they're not really interested in the Byzantine material itself. I right? this, again, is the kind of caricature vision of, of what the humanists are doing that's often put forward in, uh, in histories of Byzantine scholarship.
2: Right, and I think um my two my two um uh, b be, sides, um uh Gibbon. Um is Gibbon in this particular category as well, or is he a little later on?
1: Gibbon's a little bit later, yeah. He's he's often considered to be an enlightenment figure, so really you know, part of this eighteenth century milieu that involves people like Montesquieu and, and Voltaire.
2: Right. Right, and and uh, from your book, I think I picked this. I, I I picked this part out about the philosophers such as Montesquieu and Voltaire, and uh, how they described it as a history of nothing but rebellions, seditions, and treachery. <laughs>
0: um,
2: yeah. So you kind of like I I guess with that line, you kind of see how the field or you know the study of uh, of um, was influenced, I guess, or or was seen as
0: yeah, I, th- I think one of the challenges uh, for for Byzantine studies, I mean, um, you know gibbon has been um, has exercised an enormous influence on our field, both by uh, you know popularizing um, the history of the Byzantine Empire to a certain extent. And by saying, uh, you know, unbelievably witty, cutting things about the Byzantine Empire that, that tend to stick in people's heads. Um, and, you know, I think there's a, a certain similarity in, um, in sort of um, intellectual uh, milieu, uh, a certain similarity in philosophical disposition among figures like uh, Gibbon, Montesquieu, and Voltaire. And we often get the kind of uh, regurgitation of their criticisms of of the Byzantine world when it you know, when people talk about uh, kind of Byzantium in the Enlightenment. And, uh, you know, I I, those those criticisms are fair. But I think, um, you know, what we're trying to show for each of these four stages is that actually within those stages, it is. you know, it, it, it misleads us to uh, to assume that there's a kind of a single, uh, you know, as Jake put it, a single sort of hegemonic attitude towards the Byzantine world. And in fact, there are a number of people who are, um, you know, looking at, at at Byzantium in in different ways and uh, pulling it apart in interesting ways, you know, re- rejecting, uh, you know, one piece of it maybe um you know uh, rejecting the theology of the byzantine church and embracing the model embracing the model of um you know of um you know byzantine monarchy or you know th- I think this is one of the fascinating things that we try to show in the book is that uh, you know the people who are engaging with the Byzantine world they're able to sort of um, atomize it and find uh, the pieces of it that they uh, that they find admirable or, or, or they find uh, you know worthy worthy of critique.
1: You're exactly right, Nate. You know, just it, it makes me think of this kind of famous example of, of a figure like Edward Gibbon in his history of the decline and fall of the Roman empire will call the Byzantines Greek whenever they lose a battle, but they're Romans when they win a battle, right? There's this way of kind of disambiguating the, the, the this identity which seems unified to us, but you know, if the the complexion of business history takes on a very different color depending upon the context in which it's being engaged with, right? And I, I think that gets straight to Nate's point of the ability of some of these scholars to kind of atomize, and even you know figures who have given some of these you know, Montesquieu or, or given these these really damning kind of cutting one-liner characterizations or the, the this sort of dripping with contempt. Uh, it's pretty fascinating that when you even look beyond that, you know Byzantium does sit at the center of Montesquieu's historical vision. It, Gibbon is, is spending an enormous amount of time studying Byzantine history, and he really puts it at the core of his kind of global or, or multi-regional account of the medieval world, uh, all of which is sort of revolving around Constantinople. So if we you know, move beyond the the kind of one-liners and the, the rhetoric and actually are looking at the role that Byzantium is playing, even in this kind of philosophic vision of history, often it is very much at the center and at the heart of the kinds of um, of historical lessons that these erudites, or these philosophers, rather, these philosophical historians are trying to illustrate.
0: Yeah, if I, just to, to follow up on that, like a, a great example of this, um, an example of the kind of space between these, uh, you know, these 18th century writers who are, who are writing histories of, of the Byzantine world and the late Middle Ages, for instance, is Exactly what Jake said. I mean, in spite of the fact that uh, you know, Montesquieu and Gibbon both have uh, really damning things to say about sort of the inherent virtue of of the Byzantines. They nonetheless, except the fact that this is part of the long history of the Roman Empire. And that's that's a framework that would have been largely inconceivable to uh, to to Latin historians of the Middle Ages. So you see right there a way in which, you know, if we can move beyond, as Jake said, move beyond the one liners, we can see that there's something really quite uh, innovative. That has already occurred by the 18th century in the way that um, uh, in the way that scholars were trying to conceptualize and and sort of uh, place the Byzantine world among these uh, familiar categories.
2: Yes, that is so interesting to think because you know you. <laughs> as you mentioned behind the the behind the scenes thing is so much more detailed but whatever sticks in the populace or whatever whatever sticks is those one liners and then they keep going uh, but everything else gets forgotten and it's like <laughs> where did that come from um so that's the first stage i guess the, the humanist indifference and then you mentioned stage number 2 the baroque enthusiasm and what happens there <laughs>
0: Yeah, so the Baroque enthusiasm, I think this is, um, you know, the period of the 17th century. It's often associated uh, with France and the French court. Um, You get a new series of um, Byzantine publications um, associated with uh, the Byzantine du Louvre. This is a, um, a French series uh, sponsored by um, the Bourbon monarch Louis XIV. Um, and the aim is to edit and, and publish uh, a huge range of authors from, from the Byzantine world. And uh, you know, in traditional histories of Byzantine scholarship, this is like a, a new moment of, of appreciation for uh, for the Byzantine world, for particularly for the uh, the literature, um, broadly conceived of Byzantium. Um, and it's certainly true. And it's a it's a fascinating cultural moment. It's a moment a, a culturally period that really culminates in the figure of of ducange who was uh, an incredible scholar an incredible figure in many fields not just uh, byzantine studies and who was very quickly recognized by his peers as somebody who had um would really sort of gone beyond the efforts of of uh, of his predecessors um but there's again it's a it's it's a much richer period uh, in in the 17th century. You also have. Uh, you know, you, you've got, um, you know, the continuation of all kinds of, uh, counter-reformation political and polemical projects. Um, you know, a, a figure that I've uh, looked at in another publication, uh, Jakob Gretzer, who's a Jesuit in, uh, in the early 17th century at the, Je- the Jesuit college in Ingolstadt. Uh, he has a very different take. He, uh, Baroque enthusiasm is not, not the way I would, uh, categorize his, uh, his interest in the Byzantine world. Um, He's one of these figures who thinks that there's a kind of, uh, you know, an, an authentic Christian core that can be um, kind of separated from the surrounding chaff of, uh, you know, of, of heretical ecclesiology around around the Byzantine church. And so, um, you, you know, this another example of how. You know, thinking of this period as dominated by this enthusiasm for the Byzantine world um, ends up facing a broad array of divergent um, engagements with this material.
2: Right, and then we have uh, the third stage: the Enlightenment uh, contempt. Uh, why contempt? Uh,
1: this is this is sort of what we were just talking about in terms of Gibbon and Montesquieu, right? The attitudes of some of these, uh, you know, Enlightenment thinkers towards Byzantium which is often interpreted as kind of a reaction against religiosity a, re- a reaction against the perceived absolutism and authoritarianism of the Byzantine world which because of its you know association uh, in the Baroque period with uh, absolutist monarchs like Louis XIV becomes this kind of punching bag for these philosophes to make certain claims about you know, the, the importance of representative government and free thinking and you know, um, ra- rationality. Um, and so Byzantium becomes a caricature of the kind of monk ridden, you know, bastion of authoritarianism that many of these philosophic historians want to move away from. But you know, as we were just saying, right, that, that's only one facet of their very multifaceted engagement with Byzantium and, and Byzantine materials.
2: Right, right, and then, and then, uh, of course, uh, the last stage: the nineteenth century institutionalization.
0: And I think this is this is a, a familiar stage because um, you know I think in a lot of uh, uh, histories of, of Byzantine studies this is really the um, you know the maturation or or, or you know the um, the consummation of a, a quest towards. Um, a kind of independent discipline. Um, You know, we can think about sort of the the first chairs in uh, Byzantine studies that are being set up in German universities, of course, um, Karl Krumbacher. Uh, founds a new journal Byzantineische Zeitschrift and um, and and writes about what he thinks this uh, this project that he's engaged in. He also writes a new history of of Byzantine literature. Uh, and Anthony Caldelis talks about this in in his article in in the book. Um, and there are of course really important changes in this field. You know the the development of um, you know. Dedicated uh, university programs, uh, you know, that are um, solely focused on investigating the Byzantine world. Uh, you know, new seminars, new journals, uh, new publication series—all um, of those things are really important. And they're sort of aiming towards creating the field as um, an an independent and sort of self-standing uh, discipline. And that's a critical uh late stage in the development of byzantine studies but it's a it's a stage that emerges from the um you know collective labors of uh you know several centuries of of um uh, scholarly endeavor that that we explore and of course it's only it it's one form of uh the discipline it's a form that we know it's a form that that to a large extent we inhabit um but it's not the only way to study the history of the byzantine world or to engage the history of the byzantine world as as we try to show
2: right how was the um from your knowledge uh, how was the in- introduction and creation of the field received by other fields because you know the medieval field of course was has a long history of 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 established uh, scholarship um how was ha- how was that in relation to you know um here we are, you know, Byzantine new field, uh, or like, or maybe like the official stamp, I guess, as a field, because it's always been there.
1: So thinking back to the 19th century, there was a deep embrace of Byzantine studies as a, a, a field that needed to be addressed on its own terms. You know, someone like Theodore Mommsen, famous Roman historian, was very much a, a cheerleader for know, Byzantine studies. Uh, at the same time, though, it's that kind of separation of Byzantium from its classical Greek heritage that has helped to sort of give this field a sense of its own marginalization. So, for instance, um, in, the, uh, in the 19th century, when you had the first edition of this famous Greek lexicon by, um, um, I'm, I'm blanking on the name, Nate. He... Uh,
0: are, we, are we talking
1: uh, Liddell and Scott? Liddell Scott, thank you. Yeah, when you had the, the formation of the Liddell Scott lexicon, um, at one point, Krummacher, the, the chair of Byzantine history, or, or Byzantine literature, rather, in Munich, uh, was going to be part of the editorial board for this for future um, editions, and wanted there to be Byzantine Greek Terminology in this lexicon, and it was decided. Well, no, that's not really part of this field. You're your own separate thing. You have to make your own lexicon. You know, and so I mean, it, it's just until recently that we actually have had with with the with the publication of Eric Trapps lexicon of Byzantine Greek, uh, the creation of a, of a lexicon that really engages with the, the Byzantine language at this time. So it, it's, there was both a, a desire to see some of this work being done, but also it created structures that that separated, sometimes artificially, uh, Byzantium as, as a language, as a literature, as, you know, a, a historiographical pursuit from some of these other, you know, fields. And and in some ways, and that was almost the, the point, you know, Anthony Dallas in his article talks about some of the political, um, the the political motivations. Behind kind of creating a, a space in which Byzantium exists and isn't touching some of these other traditions. Like if we, if one was to embrace the Greekness of Byzantium and see it as many Greek nationalists did, as this sort of bridge between ancient Greece and modern Greece, um, there's a danger of that playing into certain um, irredentist Greek claims to territory that would potentially, in the 19th century, upset different balances of power. Right. So uh, there was also a very, a real political interest in kind of creating a cordon sanitaire around Byzantine and Byzantine history and say, no, no, this was its own thing. It was totally separate. Um, and, uh, and as a result, it has no modern mission to which its material can be repatriated. There's no single person who can claim it. It's its own separate kind of bubble
0: yeah I, just just to build on that, I mean that, that was a powerful idea, but there's a, um, something of a historical irony at play here uh, that always strikes me when I think about this this phase of uh, Byzantine studies in the 19th century, which is in the 19th century, the independence of your discipline was um, sort of a, a mark of sort of professional, Maturation, right? You've made it as a discipline when you've got your own journals and you've got your own chairs and and your own uh, um, you know um, publication series, et cetera. Um, but I think that it created these um, artificial distinctions um, among fields that we have in the last, you know, I don't know. 20 years come to see is increasingly problematic. Um, you know the the fact that uh, you know graduate students in America, for instance, uh, who who study uh, the Western Middle Ages often don't they don't study Greek and they don't really know much about the Byzantine world. Um, but you could say the same for Byzantinists. I mean, a lot of Byzantinists uh, uh, don't really work with Latin materials and don't necessarily know very much about the, the medieval West. And so it's been created as as a kind of hermetically sealed space that has its own, um, you know, languages and corpora and instrumenta. Um, but those boundaries are creations of the 19th century, and they're pretty artificial. And as, as we've, uh, you know, come to... Um, you know we have come to see our dif- our discipline in in different ways more recently I think that those boundaries seem increasingly uh, problematic in insofar as they uh, create these uh, frontiers that um, that you know that prevent us from seeing connections um, across uh, historical connections across these fields
2: right the more we talk about it the more I'm, I I'm like whoo <laughs> it's, it's it's such, it's such so many different paths just lead to it. And I think that the, your title, the invention of Byzantium, uh, it just brings so much into the conversation. Um, again, so much more complicated than a simple name or, or a simple title. Uh, kind of mind-blowing to think um, just how deep this goes um, and, and how far up it's going to reach at some point. Right, so we're coming close to our time. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, Again, you need a whole podcast dedicated to this on its own, (laughs) but I think we're trying to do some justice to your work and and the book, of course. Um, A question that I have is, uh, where do you see the study of Byzantium uh, going into in the future?
1: Yeah, so building off of, I think, what what Nate and I would like this book to be contributing here is if we think about... Byzantium. And the way that we understand Byzantium now is not necessarily a kind of natural or inevitable category, but the but one of many permutations that have existed in terms of what counts as Byzantine, what the scope of this field is, something that's constantly changed over the course of time. And so we're living in this kind of historical moment right now where, you know, the, the legacy of the 19th century still looms large, but it's far from the only way to conceptualize our field. Um, I think if we... Internalize that notion, you know, um, it leads us to interrogate some of the basic parameters that we work in today. I think I see that happening across Byzantine studies in a really exciting way. You know, we can see this now in the fact that more Byzantinists are learning Syriac and Arabic in addition to Slavic languages. Um, We can see this in the fact that Byzantinists are interested in in thinking about the connections between Byzantine culture and Nubian and Ethiopian cultures in Africa. Um, You know, people are interested in interrogating assumptions about Byzantium's relationship to its Roman past, as well as its Western kind of contemporary sibling cultures, and how scholars like, like Nate, um, both in this work and in, in his own work, are you know, thinking about its incredibly rich afterlives. And I think all of this just opens Byzantium up to such wider chronological and cultural horizons, you know, thinking about what counts as Byzantine and what belongs in the field. Um, and you know, I think we're heading towards a moment where increasingly we're comfortable with thinking about Byzantium not as a kind of closed off embattled world, not as this, this fragment of antiquity in out of place in medieval time or as this sort of storehouse of ancient learning that passes the torch to the west you know, in these kind of traditional ways, um, but actually a you know, part of a constellation of different cultures and regions that are seen as being fellow participants. In that kind of wider Byzantine civilization, which is centered on Constantinople but isn't necessarily confined to the board, the political borders of the Byzantine state itself.
0: Yeah, I I think that that's uh, that's exceptionally well put, Jake. And I I just um, you know as I as I think about this project and I think about the future of Byzantine studies, in some ways, I think that we can draw uh, inspiration once again from uh, Edward Gibbon. And, you know, one of the fascinating things about um, his later volumes is that uh, while he's saying nasty things about uh, about Byzantium, he's also using the Byzantine Empire, the long history of the Roman Empire, um, as a kind of framework to tell a more global history. And I think that that's precisely the kind of uh, work that... Uh, that, that Jake is lionizing and, and I agree with him completely. I think that that's um, the exciting future of, of Byzantine studies. Uh, I should say, we're not the only people who are interested in this, obviously. There are, there are a lot of other scholars who are doing this. Um, and I, I think that there's a, you know, there's a kind of um, a blueprint in some ways uh, from the way uh, late antiquity has developed um, as a field. And there are some great... Uh, I think really promising sort of overlaps in kind of uh, methods and frameworks between the study of late antiquity and the study of the Byzantine world. And people who are explicitly trying to sort of bring those together to think about Byzantium, not as a, um, you know, predominantly uh, Greek speaking, uh, you know, imperial culture centered on Constantinople, but rather as a framework for seeing connections across uh, space and time in Eurasia, into uh, and, and into Africa um, as a as a, a cultural space that uh, whose whose influence uh, you know permeates the boundaries of the old Roman Empire and and connects to you know states like uh, Nubia and Ethiopia, you know a range of linguistic cultures outside of Greek um, in in the, in the near East and in Europe. Um, so I think thinking about Byzantium, yes, as a, as a kind of box for all of these fascinating, um, you know, connections is the exciting future, uh, that, that I anticipate and I, and I want to be a part of, and for our own part here in this book, I think we're just trying to do one tiny piece of that. That's, um, not so much, uh, um, it's it's not so much synchronic as in just looking at the Middle Ages, but it really takes that um, imperative and imagines it diachronically. That is, how does Byzantium give us a way to talk about um, scholarly, uh, cultural, political uh, developments? Beyond the sort of chronological end of the Byzantine Empire, in into the world of early modern erudition. All
2: right. Thank you both so much for for answering that. Uh, I'm I'm personally excited to see where what Byzantine uh, scholars and students will be studying, or how they're going to be seeing the field in fifty years from now, for for example. So that's uh, definitely something I'm pretty excited to see. <laughs> um i've taken a lot of your time i really appreciate you both um i would like to ask you one last question before you go um what are you up to nowadays um any interesting new projects that you're working on
1: (laughs) well uh, actually oh no no go ahead no no you go, you go, Jake. <laughs> uh, so, so we uh, Nate and I are now kind of beginning a, a follow-up project to this on uh, Byzantine antiquarianism. We call it. You know, part of what we think is left out of this volume is the engagement, particularly with with material artifacts of the Byzantine past: the collection of Byzantine coins, the study of inscriptions, the study of buildings, both by Western travelers to uh, what was then in the early modern period the Ottoman Empire as well as Ottomans themselves who are living amidst the kind of architectural and material remnants of the Byzantine past, how did they make sense of that? That's something that I wish we had been able to address in this volume, but we've uh, organized, we organized back in October a, a colloquium on this topic, and so we're hoping that there's going to be something to come out of that further to, to build on this um, In addition, I'm sort of working on my own project that is totally unrelated on the history of uh, blinding and corporal punishment in Byzantium and the ways that that can tell us about the ideas, ideas about the body and um, um, uh, disability and how that factors into political legitimacy in the Byzantine world.
0: Yeah, so, so uh, as Jake said, uh, we're working on this project about material um, culture in the Byzantine world. Uh, we're also kind of uh, maybe developing something about uh, Byzantine studies in uh, Vienna specifically, which turns out to be one of the uh, really fascinating um centers for a kind of emergent uh, Byzantine scholarship, uh, especially in the 16th century. And then like Jake, I'm also uh, working on a book that's coming out of my dissertation, uh, which as provisionally titled Empire Beyond Rome. And um, it's an exploration of many of the themes uh, that are discussed in this book, Um, the the competition over the legacy of the Roman Empire in the late medieval Mediterranean, and uh, and, and the way the um, arrival of the Ottomans as as their own claimants of a kind of syncretic Roman imperialism really uh, prompts Europeans to reconsider some of their their older medieval antipathies and, and, and the way that they sort of reimagine the connections of Byzantium to uh, older categories of of empire and and Christianity in Europe.
2: Amazing! Um, best of wishes for all of your projects, and I do look forward to the to the second uh, project from from both of you. Um, I want to thank you again for being on the show today. I had a great time uh, talking about Byzantium. Uh, thank you so much again, and take care. No, well, thank you, Evan.
0: Yeah. Thanks.